0: We're in Colossians 4, 2-6 today. I'm finishing up a series today called Life on Purpose. We've been talking about how God created us for a reason. Each one of us has a reason for, that we're alive. Ephesians 2.10 says you were God's workmanship, His masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He prepared ahead of time for you to do. So before you were ever born, there were these specific divine appointments God had for you. I want you to do this. I want you to accomplish that. And guess what? It doesn't really have much to do with what you do for a living. The title on your resume, uh, the, the people in the picture with you when you take your family picture, or uh, how you look, the, the straightness of your teeth, or the quality of your hair, or, or the bottom line of your, of your finances. It has everything to do with your relationships with other people. That everybody around you, Christian and non-Christian, is there for you to bless, encourage, confront, strengthen, influence. That's our job. That's our purpose. So how do you find that purpose? That's what we've been talking about this week and really all this year we're going to be talking about it. That's our ministry goal as a ministry staff this this year is that you every one of you would know, I know why I'm alive. I know what I'm supposed to be doing and I feel equipped to do it. And that's that's the reason we're doing this missional pathway with awaken and activate comes next and then two more in the fall. So that's that's really my prayer. And we're going to close today with this series, this, uh, this passage out of Colossians about how not to waste the opportunities that we have in the relationships around us. So I want to start this way. When Back in the days when Michael Jordan was still playing basketball, so 10 years ago or so, there was a commercial, maybe even further back than that. You know, Michael Jordan was in a commercial every week. If it wasn't Nike, it was Haynes. If it wasn't Haynes, it was Gatorade. Well, this was a commercial that was a little different than the others. Because it showed him slow motion, getting out of his car, walking up to the arena. He wasn't in uniform yet. And you heard his voice narrating. I had to look it up on the internet because I remembered this commercial. And I wanted to get the words right. Thankfully, the internet saves everything, right? So here's the exact quote he spoke in the, in the commercial. He said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life and that is why i succeed and that that was just such a different commercial i remember it standing out to me and i remember thinking yeah because if you never shoot you'll never make it if you shoot you'll miss once in a while but you'll also make some so far better to try and fail than to fail to try right now that's coach speak but since i'm a preacher i went immediately to the spiritual life and, and said yeah we can apply that there too Because how many times have I had opportunities to do something great for God, to really help someone, to really make the world a better place in His name, to really bless someone else, and I passed it up because I was afraid, because I was just plain lazy, because I felt unqualified, because I was intimidated, because I was busy. I'll tell you one right off the top, the one that comes straight to my mind every time I think about this. Years ago, I hadn't been a pastor very long, and there was a, a... person in our church who passed away and they they just wanted a graveside service no chapel just graveside service and so I did it out out there in the in the little town where we were living at the time and and it was a cold wet day kind of like today so here we are all huddled under this under this little funeral home tent and I spoke I I tried to share the gospel I, I did my best in this brief time you can't preach long when you're when you're freezing when I got done, this young man came up to me. I know he was young because I was in my late 20s and he was younger than me at the time. And I remember his name because he said his name was Tim Duncan and he was from San Antonio, but he wasn't the NBA player. And, and he said to me, he, he told me about how he had been raised in church. He'd heard all this before, but he'd never really made a commitment to God. He'd never really taken the things of God seriously. He'd always had other things foremost in his mind. But today, you know, having lost someone that was important to him and and hearing the gospel again in that context, in the context of our life is short and we need to make a commitment to him while we can. He said, I I realize now that I really need to change my life. I I really need to, I need to do something. And I I handed him my business card. Remember when people carry business cards and I I handed it to him and I said, Hey, give me a call when you want to talk and, and we'll talk about this anytime. And he took it, and he put it in his pocket, and he walked away. And I never saw him again, never heard from him again. And a couple hours later, it hit me. There was your opportunity. A guy comes and says, hey, I feel like I need to change my life. I could have walked him across that next, those next steps. I could have talked it through with him. What do you think needs to change? What do you think you need to do? What do you understand about God? What can I help you with? But I didn't. I handed him a business card and sent him away. God passed me the ball and I was standing right under the goal. No one around me. And I didn't even shoot. And I wonder how many other times that's happened in my life when I've just missed opportunities because I didn't even try. Colossians 4 is about that. The book of Colossians, it's a letter from Paul to some Christian friends. Basically, it's a guide on how to be holy. I know that's a churchy sounding word, but basically how to live a life that pleases God. And he gets to the end, and Paul's got one last thing to say before he gets into his final greetings, and here's what it is. Verse 2, "...devote yourselves in prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity." Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So if you're wondering where I got the title of my sermon from, it's from that second half of verse 5 when he says, make the most of every opportunity. In the Greek, it's, it's literally rendered, redeem the time. Because time is fleeting, the clock is running out, you don't want to miss the opportunities you have. Every relationship you have, casual relationships right down to the closest, most intimate relationships in your life. Every single one of them has an expiration date. If you only have so much time to bless that person, to influence that person, to share love with that person, to lead that person to salvation. Don't waste it. So how do we do that? How do we avoid making the mistake I made? Now, I've I've been sharing a lot from uh, Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby in this series, and I know I've talked to some of you and you've said, man, I read that book and it it just didn't speak to me. And I get that. It's not the Bible. You're okay if you read that book and you didn't like it, all right? But it, it's, it changed my life. And one of the things it taught me that has really stuck with me. Blackaby says that if you come across someone who is talking about spiritual things, who's asking God questions or asking questions of a spiritual nature or just sort of expounding their beliefs and you hear them and you're like, well, that's not what it says in the Bible. What Blackaby would say is, God is working on that person. Right then and there, God's Holy Spirit is stirring their hearts because we're just basically not spiritual creatures. And so if we're thinking about spiritual issues, it's not because we've made it up ourselves. It's because God is stirring our hearts and we're seeking answers. And so Blackaby would say, if you see someone like that, stranger, friend, doesn't matter, your job right then is to say, okay, God put me in this position because he wants me to make a difference. Cancel your appointments, set aside everything you have to do to to spend as much time as possible with that person and just say, maybe I can help. Can I answer your questions? Can I dialogue with you about what you're saying and just see where it leads? And I know that's a scary thing. Some of you are like, man, I I don't know much about the Bible. I'm not a very good Christian. I'm certainly not a a theologian or a preacher or or a Bible teacher, and that's okay. Because if God wanted one of those people with that person at that moment, He would have put them there. He put you there because you have an approach and an experience and a personality that is exactly right for that moment. So how do you make sure you don't miss it? That's what this passage is about, I believe. There's three things I want to point out to you. First of all, if you look at what Paul's saying, you're going to be inspired to pray for opportunities. Pray for opportunities. Paul starts verse 2 reminding them, hey, devote yourselves to prayer. Be watchful. Be always on the lookout for things that God's doing around you. And be thankful because when we pray, we're not like striking workers who are mad at the man and want something from him. No, we're more like grateful servants, grateful family members who say, Lord, you've blessed me so much. I'm so grateful for all you've given me. And you want me to bring my heart to you. So here's the things I'm concerned about. And then Paul starts asking for prayer for himself. And I always think it's fascinating to read the writers of Scripture, especially Paul, but all of them, when they say, hey, will you pray for me about this? Because it reveals to you what's most important to them. Now, let me just put this before you. Because if you're a Christian and you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've done this. You've you've shared prayer requests. Some of us call it sanctified gossiping, right? You've said, hey, help so-and-so because they're sick or so-and-so because their marriage is in trouble, or, or he's lost his job, or you know his kid is rebelling. We've shared prayer requests for ourselves and for others. Now you're Paul. Imagine you're Paul, and the presenting issue of your life is you're in jail for preaching the gospel, You tried to stay faithful to Christ and you got locked up for you. Your own people, the Jews, want to kill you. The Romans are trying to figure out what to do with you. They think you're a nuisance. They'd rather just dispose of you so you'd be out of the way. What do you think you're going to ask for prayer for? Hey, Lord, can you let me go? Can you see fit that I would be released from my imprisonment? Will you protect my body? I sure don't want to be beheaded. I don't want to be stoned to death. I don't want to be crucified. Can you protect me and deliver me home safely? But Paul doesn't ask for any of those things. I think it's remarkable that he doesn't. The uppermost thing in his mind is, number one, Lord, open a door for our message. In other words, give me opportunities. Give me opportunities. He prays for two things. He says, God, give me opportunities. Here I am in jail around all these people who don't know you, my guards, my fellow prisoners, and I don't want to miss the opportunity I have with this captive audience. And secondly, Give me the right words to say. If a man who wrote more, more than half the New Testament needed help knowing what to say, you and I do too. And it's okay to admit that. And so that's my challenge to you this morning is that you would make this a daily prayer of yours. That every day before you get up, before you go to school, before you go to work if you're retired or you're a stay-at-home mom before you before you go wherever you're going to go that day maybe to the grocery store maybe to get your hair cut maybe taking the kids to the doctor maybe wherever you go just pray lord open a door for me to see someone who needs help someone who needs encouragement someone who needs confrontation someone who needs a word from you through me and give me the right words to say pray that every day if you want to take the worship guide home, that's in the article that I wrote. There's a little prayer emphasis at the end of it. Guess what? It's pray for opportunities. If you want to write it down on your Bible, if you want to write it down on your palm, if you want to write it down on your forehead, if you can write it on your forehead so you can read it in the mirror, I will be very impressed. But one way or another, make this a daily prayer of yours, a habit that you don't leave the house, you don't leave the home. You don't leave home, getting my pronouns mixed up, without praying that prayer. Secondly, own your responsibility. This passage commands us to own the fact that we are responsible for the, for the reputation of Jesus Christ in the lives of the people around us. Because, as it says in verse five, be wise in the way you act around outsiders. Paul is holding us responsible because God holds us responsible for the impression we give of the faith to those who don't yet believe. And when you think about the life that Paul lived and the world that he lived in, it was hard being a Christian in that world. They were very much a cultural minority, both in Israel and in the Gentile world. Paul's writing here to Gentiles. And if you study early church history, you find out there were all kinds of horrible things that people believed about Christians. They they thought they were oddballs at best. Traitors at worst. They were accused of being atheists because they didn't believe in any of the Greek and Roman gods. Oh, you you worship Jupiter, right? No, no, I don't I don't worship Jupiter. Well, well, how about uh, how about Aphrodite or how about uh, Poseidon? No, I don't I don't believe in him either. Well, you must be an atheist. They were accused of being incestuous because they went around calling each other brother and sister. They were accused of being unpatriotic because they didn't worship the emperor as was commanded. They were accused of being cannibals because there was this rumor that in their secret ceremonies they had this ritual where they ate the flesh of some guy and drank his blood. And so people spread these tales around and folks were like, man, stay away from those Christians. They're weird. They're crazy. Now, today, it's a lot better for us. We live in a, a, a country where we, we walk in the heritage of Christian faith. Uh, there's religious freedom. Our society is very tolerant. And yet, at the same time, I mean, we've got it much easier than they did. And yet, at the same time, think about the kinds of things that are said about Christians today. I don't know how much attention you pay, I don't know how, much, how often you're on social media and paying attention to the things that people who aren't believers say about us, you may be in your little Christian bubble and you don't know what is said. That, that's a good place to be. I guess it's comfortable. But let me tell you some of the things that people say about us today. Because for a lot of folks who didn't grow up in church, and that's becoming more and more the fastest growing group in our country, the only contact they have with Christianity is what they see on the news if they happen to flip over to TBN. And that is not what I want representing my faith. So what do they say about us? Well, they say that Christians are more about political power than having any real principles, that we pretend to be moral, we pretend to be compassionate, but all we really care about is, is forcing everyone into our beliefs through legislation. So we'll vote for anybody. We'll vote for the worst sinner, a guy who's accused of rape, as long as he, as long as he has the policies we uh, agree with and, and enjoy, then then we'll just throw our principles out the window. And, and, and they say, we we hate anyone who doesn't look just like us and, and think like us. And we build our little walls and, and our big uh, church palaces, and, and, and we don't care about anybody other than ourselves. And we have these weird beliefs. I mean, you, you've heard about that church that's marching around at, at the soldiers' funerals, and they're carrying those signs that say God hates these kinds of people and that kinds of people. And, and and you heard about that, that couple out in California that tortured their kids? They were, they were churchgoers. That's the way these people are. I mean, some of them are a little better at hiding it, but they're weird. These are the kinds of things that are say, being said about it. And you're, you know, we bristle when we hear this. And we want to jump up and be defensive. And we want to say, well, don't listen to the media. I mean, they just, they just want to focus on the weirdos and the oddballs and the, and the blowhards because it gets ratings and it gets web hits. And, and we want to we want to accuse others and we want to say, well, we're not so bad. Look at those Muslims over there. Look at those fundamentalist Hindus over there. Look at this person or look at that person or look at what's going on in Hollywood or look at what's going on in, in people who don't believe. We want to deflect by accusing others. Or we want to say, so, as some Christians do, well, this isn't a popularity contest. Jesus said that we'd be hated. They crucified him. Should it be so surprising they don't like us? But I want you to notice. And there's truth in all those things I just said. But I want you to notice that none of those are the way the apostles responded. When the church was being defamed, when Christianity was thought of as a weird cult in the early church, the the early disciples didn't say, well, (laughs) I know you are, but what am I? They didn't point fingers at the lost Roman world and and at their corruption, and they didn't just shrug their shoulders and say, who cares? Paul said, Paul said, Guard how you act around outsiders. Peter and Paul both separately said, respect the governing authorities. Obey the law. Keep in mind, the people's, people on the throne were the Caesars. Nero, people like that. Evil people. You think we have some, some, a history of some rough leaders in, in our country today. These people took the cake. And yet Paul said, obey them. Respect them. Be a good citizen. Don't bring disrepute upon the name of Christ. If you're going to suffer, and sometimes you will, make sure you suffer because you love too much, because you're too full of grace, because you have integrity and you don't compromise. Not because you're a jerk or a lawbreaker or a troublemaker. We're very concerned that we protect the image of Jesus and that people know what the gospel's about and they don't get the wrong impression. I, I'm reminded of uh, when I was a kid growing up and I loved football and baseball and basketball and, and baseball was my second favorite sport and, and uh, people my dad's age and older would say, yeah, yeah, you, you've got these great players today, but nobody was as good as Joe DiMaggio. Anybody heard that name before? He was the center fielder for the Yankees and still to this day holds the, one of the most unbreakable records of all. He, he had, a, had a base hit in 56 straight games. Great player, I never saw him play. Um, But one night, someone asked him, Mr. DiMaggio, you're the greatest player in the game. Why do you play so hard every night? And he said, because every game, I know there might be somebody there who's never seen me play before. I don't want them to walk away saying, ah, he's just a bomb. He's overrated. He was that concerned about his reputation. We're not concerned about our reputation. We're concerned about the name of Christ. Every time we're outside these walls, we're around people who've never seen Jesus before. Some of them are going to make up their mind about what they think of Him and His teachings and the movement He started based on what they see in you and me. And we'd better own that. Because whether we do or not, it's true. That's how people make up their mind about Christ, by what they see in us. So own it. Third thing Paul would say is, Watch your words, be careful the things you say. Proverbs 18:21 says, "Life and death are in the power of the tongue. The words you say are life and death. James, the brother of Jesus, spent a whole chapter on how powerful our words are and how hard it is to say the right thing. Jesus in Matthew 12:36 through37 this might be the scariest thing you hear all day. He said, "I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. for by your words you will be justified and by your words." you will be condemned. And then Paul says here, let your conversation always be full of grace. What does that mean? Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is how we come to salvation. So I think it means that every time we speak, it needs to be something that brings someone closer to God. People ought to be able to say, every time I talk to him, every time I talk to her, I come away a better person. Now that doesn't mean that everything we say has to be uplifting and encouraging and happy because sometimes parents, sometimes you have to say hard things to your kids. Sometimes employers, you have to get on your employees. Sometimes you have to chew them out if that's just part of the job. Sometimes as a Christian brother or sister, you see one of your friends doing the wrong thing and the loving thing, the right thing to do is to grab them by the collar and say, hey, you better change. But even when we say negative-sounding things, even when we have to get ugly with people, it better be out of a motivation of saying, I love you too much to not say this. I love you, therefore I'm going to say something that's going to hurt. Our words need to be gracious, full of grace, and seasoned with salt. What does that mean? Because we have this expression, he used salty language and it means he used foul language, but that's not the way Paul used that term here. I guarantee you there is no commandment in the Bible, thou shalt swear, okay? There's no commandment that says thou shalt cuss. Um, What Paul is saying is, make sure your words are interesting, well thought out, worthy of being spoken. Salt was the seasoning in the ancient world. They didn't have a big spice rack. Nobody was using fennel and rose hips in the ancient world. You used salt, okay? and salt made food taste better it made things go down easier and what paul is saying when he says let your great let let your words be seasoned with salt is take some time to craft your words before you open your mouth before you send that email before you post that tweet make sure is this worth saying does this reflect well on god will this make people's lives better it's not such a bad idea for some of us to practice the discipline of silence for a while, to go through an entire day and say, I'm not going to speak except when spoken to, and just see. I mean, even some of you if, who think, well, I don't talk that much. If you paid somebody to transcribe your words all day, follow you around just note-taking, at the end of the day, I guarantee you, you'd be like, I said that? My goodness. Sometimes it would be good if we just slowed down. And we didn't have to be the one who said the funny thing. We didn't have to be the one who won the argument. We didn't have to be the one who expressed our opinion every single time. Let your words be with grace, seasoned with salt. Let me just close with this. Some of you are familiar with a comedy duo named Penn and Teller, perhaps. They're illusionists. They wouldn't call themselves magicians because their whole shtick is they do tricks and then they tell you how they did them. They're kind of the anti-magicians, but uh, you might recognize them. Penn is the big guy and Teller is the little guy. He's sort of like Harpo Marx. He doesn't talk during the act. Some of you are like, who the heck is Harpo Marx? Well, Google it, but anyway, Penn and Teller. Penn, Penn Gillette is his name. He's the tall guy. He's actually an atheist and a very outspoken one. He blogs a lot and, and talks a lot about his atheism. And a few years ago, he did a video blog, basically just talking into the camera, for about 10 or 15 minutes, uh, telling a story about after a show one night, a Christian businessman approached him and gave him a Bible. And he said, I've been approached by Christians before, but this guy was different. There was something about him. There was a graciousness about him. There was just an authenticity to him that I was impressed with. And and then he said this, and I'm quoting. He said, I've always said, you know, that I don't respect people who do not proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not, or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, oh, well, it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize them? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming to hit you, And you didn't believe it. And that truck was bearing down on you. There's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And that is how one of the most convicting messages on sharing your faith I've ever heard came from an atheist magician. And he's right. And the good news is this. The good news is, remember Tim Duncan that I told you about? God wasn't putting all his eggs in my basket. I'm sure he sent someone else to talk to him after I failed. I have absolute confidence in that. The really, really good news is that even if we try and fail, even if we never try, grace is still grace. Because here's the core of Christianity. It's not the Ten Commandments. It's not go to church. It's not tithe. The core of Christianity is that when Jesus saw us in the semi-truck of our own sin was bearing down on us, about to crush us into oblivion forever, Jesus didn't buy a billboard that said, I love you. He didn't send us an email. He didn't hand us a business card. He threw himself in the path of the truck. He took the brunt Our punishment upon himself. Why? Well, yes, so we could go free. But free for what? Free so we could live out the purpose we were made for, and go through all of eternity with people coming up to us left and right, saying, "Hey, this is a great place, isn't it?" And I'm here in part because of you. Remember that time when I was down and I was hurting. Remember that time when I didn't know anything. Remember that time you might even say man i can't even remember that but they do they will jesus died so you could have that jesus died so you could fulfill the purpose he made you for so this week think of that younger me wasting my opportunity think of think of how you don't want to experience that yourself because i guarantee you this week there will be opportunities to say something to someone to have a conversation with somebody who needs it. And if you're prayed up, you'll recognize that opportunity for what it is. And if you're prayed up, you'll feel a responsibility. You won't say to yourself, well, but I've got a lot on my plate. You'll say, no, no, this is job number one. And if you're prayed up, God will give you the words to say. And you'll be amazed at the stuff coming out of your mouth. You'll walk away saying, God used me. And I can't wait to see what God's going to do. In you and through you in days ahead. Clock is ticking for goodness sakes, for the sake of God Almighty, shoot the ball.